Our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 6 through 11 and 21 through 22. This is what the Lord says. The King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it forth before me. Who has announced from, the, from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what it is yet to be. Do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there, no, is there any other God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. And so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a God or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall, put to be, shall be put to shame. The artisans too are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. You know, we humans, we're a very imaginative species. We often like to speak in metaphors and similes and analogies. We do this in order to describe things when, we, when simple descriptive details just won't do. We like to say something is like something else. For example, instead of specific descriptions such as the man was able to bench press 300 pounds, we say he is strong as an ox. Or in school, math class for me was like watching a foreign movie without subtitles. Or perhaps one of the best metaphors I've ever heard is that once someone was watching a ballerina and she rose gracefully in point and extended one slender leg behind her like a dog at a fire hydrant. When it comes to describing things, we can come up with some really creative comparisons to take the place of specific details. We do this to try and paint a picture, to try and help someone imagine a little better what it is we are attempting to convey. Although we have the ability to speak in specifics, we tend to favor metaphors 
and analogies. And I think this is part of the reason Christians love to talk about God. Because when it comes to God, all we have are metaphors, similes, and analogies. God exists beyond our ability to fully know or understand. There is no end to God. One of my favorite theologians was a man named Karl Barth. And in describing the study of theology, he said, there can be great lawyers in the world. There can be great doctors. There can be great scientists. But there can only be little theologians. Because the subject of study is so infinitely vast that no one will ever eclipse but just the surface of discovery. Which means no one will ever be much further along in the study of theology than anyone else. You who are medical doctors, you know so much more than I do about the human body. And even if I started studying tomorrow, it would take me the better part of my life to learn as much as you and be as far along in the field of medicine. But I've been studying theology for almost two decades, and I am no greater at this endeavor than the person who is tuning into worship for the first time today. Because on the spectrum of knowledge, when it comes to God, everyone will always be at their own unique position. And no one will ever be able to say they have reached the end. There is no end to the knowledge of God. And the only way we can know God at all is by reflecting on the ways God chooses to interact with the created world. Therefore, in order to try and make sense of God, we have to say God is like blank. God is like a potter, and we are the clay. God is like a mighty wind that covers the whole earth. God is like the light that illuminates the darkness. These are some of the pictures Scripture paints for us about what God is like. And not only do we modern Christians use these literary techniques to describe God, but the writers of the Bible did this a lot. They use this analogizing as well. The psalmists and the historians, they use all sorts of creative language to describe God. And they did this for the same reason we do, because God is not fully describable by human means, which is why interpreting these analogies and these metaphors used throughout the scripture is one of the most fun exercises in biblical studies. The more we explore the depth and these metaphors and these analogies, the more we learn about the nature of God. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. God is a sun and a shield. God is like a rock. However, when we do this, there is a major potential problem with this way of talking about God. This exercise has its limits because there is no one perfect metaphor or analogy to describe God. God is all in all. God is alpha and omega. There is no end to God. So the entirety of who God is cannot be contained in any just one human way of thinking, in any one analogy. We need multiple analogies. We need multiple metaphors to try and give us any type of holistic picture of who God is. But what often ends up happening is that as individuals and sometimes as communities, we end up becoming fixated on our favorite image of God. We discover some image or some analogy for God, and it, like, it strikes a chord within us to the point where it becomes difficult to see God any other way. 
We discover some metaphor, some analogy, some image of who we want God to be. And then instead of worshiping the God of limitless possibilities, we worship the image we like the most. This, my friends, this is the most deceptive form of idolatry. Idolatry is not just when you love money or whenever you put your job before your faith. Idolatry happens when we decide on who or what God has to be. And we remove the possibility of God being anything else other than what we have decided God has to be. When we read our scripture passage this morning, this, this prophecy from Isaiah, we hear all about idols. We hear about how bad they are. And this sentiment rings true throughout the Bible. Idols are a very bad thing. In the Ten Commandments, the first two of the ten say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In this passage from Isaiah we read earlier, God talks about the emptiness of idols and who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Like he's, who would shape a God and cast an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that, they'll be put to shame. Such craftsmen, they're only human beings. Let them all come together. Let them take their stand. Let them be brought down to the terror and the shame. I mean, idols, they don't sound like something God likes a whole lot, right? It is scriptures like this that warn us about the danger of idolatry, but this text and ones like it don't do a full justice to how pervasive idolatry can be. Because when we hear about idolatry in scripture, the descriptions of the vice or the vices are always talked about with a certain tangibility, right? We think of idols as golden calves or other animals that are things being crafted by craftsmen things that have shapes that can actually be bowed down before, other gods of other religions. And in our modern sensibilities, we've reinterpreted golden calves or other types of idols to be still things that are somewhat obvious, like money, houses, cars. Insert your idol here. However, the truth is that idolatry is significantly more infectious than we tend to give it credit. Idols are not just limited to statues or monuments fashioned in the forms of gods or forms of other religions. Idols can take many shapes, many forms. Sometimes they're formless. And sometimes that is when they're most corrosive, when they have no form at all. Wealth can become an idol. Sex can become an idol. Power can become an idol. Anything that takes our attentions and our efforts that are meant to be given to God and redirects them into something for more personal gain is idolatrous. However, as truthful as all those things are about idolatry that we've just said, even lust or wealth or power, those are still too limited to capture the full scope of just how toxic idolatry can be. 
If you've been on this Christian journey for any length of time, it's likely obvious to you that worldly pursuits such as power and wealth and these things, those are idolatrous. But have you ever considered the fact that your own conceptions of God might in fact be the most damaging idol of all? Think about it. What is more harmful? The danger you know is out there, so you try to avoid it, or the one that you've never even recognized and it already has a foothold in your daily life. Statues of other gods, lust of power, love of money, these, these are things that we can identify as idolatrous and that we can work to avoid those things. But what about, what about when the way you have imagined God your whole life becomes the very thing that prevents you from really knowing God at all or knowing God more fully? What about when you realize the thing that brings you the most comfort might actually be the greatest threat? That, my friends, that is the true danger of idolatry. And it's perhaps the most common form that goes most unrecognized. Because we like to think in analogies. We like to talk in metaphors. And because we are limited to those things to talk about God, we become so invested in particular analogies, particular metaphors for God that make us feel the most comfortable. We like to imagine God in a way that makes us feel safe, in a way that reflects our own morals, in a way that looks like we look. We want God to be just like us. So God becomes like an elderly father figure or someone who will fight our battles, or an authority figure that will tell the people we disagree with that they are wrong. The images of God we like the most are the ones that make us feel the best. But the greatest danger of idolatry is to look at God and try to see how God is made in our image rather than look at ourselves and ask, how are we made in the image of God? The finest craftsman of idolatry is the one who places upon God the characteristics and qualities that are most agreeable. There's no more dangerous idol than the one that goes unrecognized. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to explore some of the most popular images associated with the divine. Next week, we'll look at God as a king and then God as an old bearded man or a fatherly figure. We'll look at God as a warrior, and finally God as a judge. We will explore each of these images in depth and discuss what about these images can become problematic. What are the limits to these analogies? And we will also talk about the ways these images can be helpful and how they do provide us with a fuller, more rich understanding of who God is. There's one underlying goal in this whole series, and it's this. We want to discover how images of God can go from being idols to icons, from being idols to icons. Idols are the things that replace God. Idols are the things that separate us from God. Idols are toxic. They are destructive. Icons, though, icons are the things that draw us into a deeper understanding of who God is. Icons are forms and images and ideas that help us have a more full picture about God. Idols capture. Icons 
captivate. All four of these images, like so many others, had the potential to be both idol or icon. And our endeavor as Christians is to seek out the things in life that can draw us closer to God and remove the things that block us from knowing God more fully. And so we hope that you will join us over the coming weeks as together we explore how we can look at certain images of God and be drawn into a beautiful tapestry, illuminating a grand picture of who God is. Together, we will traverse the pitfalls of how those same images can imprison us in a relationship with a God of our own making. May we make this journey together and as a church family, come into an even greater relationship with the God who is our all in all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.